0: Standing as we pray together. Come Holy Spirit now. You have assembled us here today in the providence of a sovereign God to hear this message. We are here at a divine appointment. And Lord, we trust you that you will speak to us now through the preaching of your word. So I pray, Lord God, that you would give me utterance, that you would equip me to be the teacher of the scriptures. And I pray for all of us, pastor and congregation together, that you would give us tender hearts, ready to receive the truth of God's word. Come, Holy Spirit, in power and might, speak a word to your people today. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, right now, today, we are at an end of a season in the Christian year. This is called the season after the epiphany. And the epiphany started back on January the 6th, uh, and by the way, in eastern North Carolina, where my daddy is from and where I have my roots, uh, that's called Old Christmas. I don't know if anybody's ever heard that before, but that was Old Christmas. And if you uh, are from really down east on uh, North Carolina, you know that January 6th is not just the day that the three kings showed up and saw baby Jesus, but it's Collard stealing night. So uh, do you, have you ever heard of that, Charles? I don't think I might be the only one uh, in the world left that knows about that. But that's not what we celebrate at Christ Church. We don't celebrate college still in not ever. Um what an idea. Yeah, yeah. but that is that's where this begins. Is back with the coming of the three wise men to encounter the infant Jesus. They come looking for Israel's king, and God reveals Himself to the Gentiles as a babe in Bethlehem. And then the very next Sunday in this season after the Epiphany, we have the baptism of Jesus by John in the Jordan River. And that's a part of this season in which God reveals himself, epiphany, manifestation. God reveals himself in the baptism of Jesus when Jesus goes down into the water. The Father speaks, this is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. The Spirit descends upon him in the form of the dove, and the Word of God made flesh. Jesus the Messiah is baptized in the waters of the Jordan River. And the very next Sunday we have, we're back at the Jordan again. Jesus is walking along with some of his disciples. John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So God is revealed in Christ again. This is the Passover Lamb that will take away the sin of the world. And then as we went through a little series in the Matthew uh, text from Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is revealed as King in God's Kingdom. He is the king of God's kingdom. And so the words of chapter 5 really of the entire Sermon on the Mount are the constitution, the kingdom manifesto of the kingdom of God that is being revealed in Jesus Christ and that is breaking into the world in Jesus Christ. And right here this Sunday on the Mount of Transfiguration, God reveals himself again in a powerful way in Jesus Christ as the veil, as it were, is lifted. And we see the divine Son of God in his his glory. And as as the cloud, just like the cloud that covered the mountain, uh, Mount Sinai that we heard about this morning in the Old Testament reading, covers the the mountain of Sinai and the law is given and the presence of God is, is there for the people of Israel. So that cloud of glory descends again and Christ is revealed as the living word of God. He's the incarnate son of God. And we see the veil pulled away for just a moment. It's a glorious moment. But I want to to suggest something to you this morning that in that time of Christ's manifestation and his glory at the transfiguration, something else is happening that is directly intentional. It is intentional by, I'm sure, the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in the scriptures because it points us not just to Christ and his glory on the mount, but it also points us to his humiliation and suffering on Calvary. There is a direct link in the scriptures that we just heard. Between Christ revealed in glory and the Christ we will see in humility and suffering upon the cross. And that's what I want us to look at this morning. That somehow in God's strange, strange kingdom, God's glory is inseparable from the suffering of Calvary. It's easy to see that the transfiguration is a preview of Christ's resurrection glory. As a matter of fact, decades ago, uh, revisionist biblical scholars, what do I mean by revisionist biblical scholars? It's people who study the Bible a lot, but really don't believe it. Okay, so, (laughs) uh, said, well, this is just a misplaced um, resurrection account that's just been moved by the gospel writer. But I don't think that's the case at all. Because I do think what we see here really is Christ revealed in his glory in a way that makes us look at his cross. It's hard to see this as a preview of the passion of the suffering of our Lord Jesus Christ. But if you look at verse 5 of chapter 17 of Matthew's gospel, we just heard read. You can, you can see a hint. You can look at a hint right here. It says, He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed him, and a voice from the cloud said, Listen, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Now, those words spoken from the cloud should sound familiar, even as I have reviewed it where we have been through this epiphany season. The, they are almost identical to the words that we heard at the beginning of this season of the, uh, of the season after Epiphany, listen again to the narrative of Christ's baptism. going to just read this again. So we heard Matthew 17. Listen to Matthew chapter 3. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, Listen, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And immediately after those words in Matthew chapter 3, the Spirit of God leads Jesus into the wilderness for a time of trial and temptation by Satan. So baptism, the baptism of Jesus, in the baptism of Jesus, God speaks his word acknowledging and exalting Jesus as the Son of God. And then Jesus immediately is led into a time of great trial and testing. In the same way, immediately after the words spoken at the Mount of Transfiguration, the the trajectory of the life of Jesus changes. This is the hinge point of Jesus' ministry. Up to this point, Jesus has been on an itinerant ministry of proclaiming the kingdom of God and demonstrating the inbreaking of the kingdom of God through mighty deeds of power, like the casting out of demons and healing the sick and multiplying loaves and fishes, these are all signs of God's kingdom reign, breaking in into the present time. But at the be- but beginning at the transfiguration, that portion of Jesus' ministry is over. And now he is headed to Jerusalem on a journey that will end on the cross. And the transfiguration account has, as recorded in Luke's gospel, is explicit about this. Listen to what it says. This same text, basically, as Luke interprets it it in Luke chapter 9. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure. The word in Greek is literally Exodus, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. The Mount of Transfiguration points to the Mount of Calvary. And New Testament scholar, not a revisionist one, I don't think, Dr. Dell Allison points out a series of intentional links between the transfigura- Transfiguration account in Matthew's gospel and the Crucifixion account in Matthew's gospel. Now, in, in, you know, you do biblical studies. These things are called chiasms. It's kind of like where you have one idea that kind of, cross, you see a chi in Greek is, a, is the letter X. And so it's kind of like one idea points to an idea over here, and then an idea over here points to an idea over there. And it's kind of a neat way that ancient people uh, thought about things. It's a a way of of kind of bringing out the, the mysteries of the Scriptures in a powerful way. So I want you to listen to this, and this is actually very much intentional in the Scripture here. In Matthew's account, listen, in the Transfiguration, Jesus takes others with him, right? He takes Peter, James, and John. At the crucifixion, Jesus is taken by others. At the transfiguration, Jesus is elevated on a mountain. At the crucifixion, Jesus is elevated and lifted high on the cross. The transfiguration is a private epiphany. Say no one to anyone about the vision that you have seen. It's a private revelation. But the crucifixion is a public spectacle of the humiliation of Christ. Christ reveals his glory in private. He is humiliated as public spectacle. At the transfiguration, there's a dazzling light. But on the day of crucifixion, darkness covers the land. At the transfiguration, Jesus' garments become glowing white, bright as they can be. At the crucifixion, Jesus' garments are stripped off of him. At the transfiguration, Jesus is glorified. At the crucifixion, Jesus is shamed. At the transfiguration, Elijah appears. And then at the crucifixion, Elijah does not appear. In fact, Jesus is crying out, Eli, Eli, Lema Sabachthani. And somebody says, he's calling for Elijah. And Elijah doesn't show up. At the transfiguration, two Old Testament saints stand side by side with Jesus. But at the crucifixion, it's criminals side by side with Jesus. At the transfiguration, God confesses Jesus. At the crucifixion, Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? At the transfiguration, the disciples fall in reverent prostration at his feet. But at the crucifixion, the crowd mockingly prostrates itself. If you are the son of God, save yourself. The transfiguration is the glory before the cross. Jesus descends the mount only to go to Jerusalem for the passion, and we have seen it prefigured here at his glorification, transfiguration on the Mount. Here's the thing, brothers and sisters, I want you to listen to this. This is very important. I think it's very important for the church today. We cannot, you cannot, we cannot have Jesus without his cross. We cannot have Jesus without his cross. Let me tell you, there are two strains of Christianity. uh, There's more than two strains, but in the United States right now that I am personally familiar with. And both of these strains don't want the cross. Back a few years ago, I, was, uh, I went with some other church planters to a uh, church planting um, seminar uh, at a place down in South Carolina. And uh, they brought in a marketing guy who had d- done like brand marketing for people, big name companies, big corporations. And so this whole, listen, this whole event for evangelical church planters was all about marketing and how to be relevant. Uh, well, let me tell you what uh, things that you don't put out on marketing are guys being tortured to death on a piece of wood. Uh, see, marketing—it the, the, just grieved my spirit. There is so much. Okay, my tribe of evangelicals. There is so much in that that grieves me because it denies the power of the cross. We have to use technique. We have to get crafty about our marketing. Because goodness knows God really doesn't have it going on when it comes to the attractive power of the Holy Spirit. So we need to give him a hand. Uh, Brothers and sisters, let me tell you what. Uh, If we, um, you can draw a crowd with marketing, but it is not the power of Christ crucified. And I'm just, that's just, and it doesn't last. It's about that deep. And I've been there. There's another stream of Christianity that doesn't like the cross either. Uh, and it's, it's kind of coming to the fore in our culture here recently. And I would call it progressive Christianity. And it's a Christianity that, that and everybody does this. I mean, uh, it happens on the political right and it happens on the political left. So everybody's just as guilty. But it seems right now that, you know, Jesus is the mascot for progressive Christians. He's not Lord. He's mascot. And, uh, and here's the thing is that we don't, if we're a progressive Christian, we're a little bit concerned about the cross. Because, you know, progressive, being a progressive Christian is about activism. But here's the thing about the cross. God acts and we don't. God acts because we can't act. Because there's nothing we can do to save ourselves. And so the cross is God's exclamation point. That all of our bootstrapping and all of our activism in the end doesn't help. Unless the cross is in the center of it. Now, I believe in activism. We're an activist church. Uh, But it has to be rooted and grounded in the cross. We cannot have Jesus if we don't have his cross. Christ's glory and his eternal sonship are inseparable from his role as suffering servant. We cannot know Jesus in his glory apart from Jesus in his suffering. And that is exactly what St. Paul said in the reading from Philippians we heard this morning. Paul says this, brothers and sisters, I am so glad. I didn't choose this, you know, this, we have this thing called the lectionary and the lectionary is like, okay, uh, we, we get together as the body of Christ corporately and we're going to choose what we're going to read as we get, we're not bound to it. I mean, if I want to deviate, I can deviate. I've been known to deviate, (laughs) but I just think it's so cool that this is the passage that is linked in the lectionary to this text today. It's Philippians chapter 3. Paul says, I want to know Christ. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. So we have Christ and his glory and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. We cannot know Christ apart from his cross. Becoming like him in his death. This is another chiasm, by the way. And so somehow to attain the resurrection from the dead. Did you hear that? That's the model for knowing, for being intimately drawn into Christ. That pattern is revealed here in Matthew in the transfiguration account where God's glory is inseparable from the cross. And it's true in my life and it is true in your life. God uh, God does not want us to know his power unless we are willing to share in his cross. We cannot know his power. We cannot share in the amazing resurrection victory of Christ if we don't also share in his cross. But in order for us to do that, we have to embrace all of Christ, including his humiliation, his cross. We cannot know Christ and share in his victory. We cannot walk in the power of the coming kingdom. We cannot do those things unless we share all of Christ. And that includes his suffering servanthood. Listen to what it says in Romans chapter 8, verses 15 and following. Now, these are great passages about um, how we we are brought into all of the richness of who God is and all of the benefits that come from being a child of God are expressed here. But listen to how it's couched. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father, we're God's children. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs. Think about it. You are God's heir. And you are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. So everything that the Father has for Christ, all the riches of his kingdom, are ours with him. Right? Yes, they are. And then it says this. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. The cross is the gift that God gives his friends. And brothers and sisters, one of the things that I've seen in my recent life here recently is that some people have thought of Jesus as a talisman. They thought of Jesus as a rabbit's foot. Uh, He's my lucky charm to keep bad things from happening to me. How did you get the idea that this man who suffered on a cross keeps bad things from happening to you if you are united to him? If the cross is the central symbol of Christianity, how do we get the idea that somehow bad things won't happen to us either? And so, when God allows the cross to enter into our life, and folks, let me tell you about this: um, we, you will all, everyone in this room, me and you both, are going to experience painful things. And th- sometimes those are things that God allows into our lives that they might be, they might draw us into fellowship with Christ on His cross. But here's something I got to tell you about a cross: it's painful. It's painy pain. All right? Because uh, we all can say, I can say with lip service that I know that this is a part of following Jesus. But when it happens, it's hard. It's really hard. And then what I see happen is people are shocked that something really bad happened in their life. And then they say, well, I didn't sign up for this. What, What part of deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me did you not understand? I hate, I hate preaching about this because I just know he's going he's gonna to say, all right, you're going to talk like that.
1: Here's some cross. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Why is it, though, that this should be the way it is? Why, why would Christ's glory be so connected to his suffering? It sounds perverse. You know, we're not Buddhist. The scriptures do not say that life is suffering. So why is glory connected to suffering in Christ? And it's this reason. Because the glorious God who comes to us in Christ is love. Self-giving love is the life of the eternal Trinitarian community. And when self-giving love encounters a fallen and broken world, it is inseparable from suffering. So here's what happens when the love of God, you know, we we love that passage, God is love, comes from 1 John. 1 John elucidates the love of God in connection with a fallen world. Here's what it says. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. Love, love, love. God loved us, right? And so how does God love us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins? The atoning sacrifice of God is his response to a fallen and broken world. Suffering is what happens when love encounters a broken world. Think about a parent and a child. you know, back, I remember so clearly, uh, it was in January of 1985, and some of y'all weren't even born then. That's when my first daughter was born. We were in Chapel Hill. Uh, back then, it used to snow in North Carolina in the wintertime, and we used to have winter. And uh, the snow was on the ground, and I remember, the, I remember them bringing that baby girl and putting her in my arms. And nobody told me I could fall in love with anybody that fast. Nobody, I mean, it's, it's, I don't know, I think they've got some kind of smell that, you know, that God puts on them. So that when, you know, like, that's my kid. I love this thing, you know. And But I just fell immediately in love with that kid. You know, when they're little like that, you just love them so much you could just eat them up. And then they get to be 14 and you wish you had and... <laughs> But seriously, think about the love poured out on that child as an infant. It's a, limitless, it's a limitless source of joy for the parent and for grandparents, too, I have to say. But if that child grows up and rebels and rejects that parent or takes a path of self-destruction, all of the parent's love for that child becomes suffering. The very love that you have for that child becomes like a stone that you carry in your chest. And any parent that's seen this knows what I'm talking about. It's like a blade between your ribs, and it never goes away. And it's there because you love them. That's why. That's why love can turn into suffering. C.S. Lewis, in his little book, The Four Loves, writes... To love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even to an animal. Wrap it up carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. The alternative to tragedy, or at least the risk of tragedy, is damnation. The only place outside of heaven you can be perfectly safe from all dangers and perturbations of love is hell. If we are are united to Jesus Christ by the new birth and sealed with the Holy Spirit then the transfiguration is a preview of your life and my life in Christ. We cannot experience the glory we are created for in Christ unless we embrace his cross and welcome his suffering into our lives. To love Jesus and to love the world he came to save means that we will be wounded by the world. And my heart has been so grieved and burdened in the last few days, just breaking over broken world. The scripture says again in Romans eight, for those whom he foreknow, foreknew he also predestined, he predestined to be, listen, conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Did you hear that? We are called to be conformed to the image of his son. What does that mean? We are, we are meant to look like Jesus. And we literally cannot look like Jesus unless we bear the marks of the cross in our lives too. And those wounds are not made so much by nails as they are by God's love for a lost and rebellious world. But there is good news, brothers and sisters. We hold a victory feast here at this table every Sunday at Christ Church. And the victory feast we hold here at this table reveals that what begins as suffering passion ends in triumphant celebration that can never be darkened by sin or sadness again. Jesus says at this table, this is my body, which is given for you, broken body. This is my blood shed for you. That is his passion. But also at this table we say, Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again. Amen. We have passion and victory together, united at this table. And the victory of God that is so complete, so overwhelming, turns the very pain of the cross into songs of joy. And that's something that you and I all have to look forward to. And we get a foretaste of that every week here at this table. That story gets told over and over and over again so that you don't forget when in the middle of the time when you're getting your time of cross, when, you ha- when you're having the painy pain, don't forget <laughs> there's a resurrection. Don't forget there's the ascension. Don't forget, there's His coming again in glory. When the times are hard, and when Christ's cross is evident in your life, be united to Him. Accept that gift that God gives you as His friend. But be recognizing that along with that cross, He gives you the victory of the resurrection, and that can never be taken away. This is such good news. It's such good news. So, brothers and sisters, let's prepare our hearts now, even today, as we walk once again with Jesus from this moment of transfiguration. And we're going to walk with him over the next few weeks in Lent. We're going to go into his temptation. We're going to go into the times where he combated evil. We're going to go all the way with him to Jerusalem. That's that's the story of our people. And we will tell it again. And it's the only true story. It's the only true story that will never end. It's the only story that gives life and meaning and purpose in this life. And we can begin to experience it right now today. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.